0: Episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cocholillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Protection Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast or want to make a donation to help support it, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and just click on the PayPal button and make a donation. And now, without further ado, my guest for today is Jerry Hyde. He has a book called Empathy for the Devil, and we are going to be talking about my three favorite things in life, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Thanks for coming on, buddy.
1: Hey, no, thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning, Southern (laughs) Alabama. It's a pissy, awful gray autumn afternoon in London here.
0: Do you ever have nice weather in London?
1: Uh, we have it in August when we all leave the country and go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's the British for you. Don't, yeah. don't get me started on that one. <laughs> I can't imagine. Let's talk about the there. fun stuff. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes, yes. So, um, I mean, you, you write some really interesting stuff. It's like self-help stuff for people that don't want to read self-help stuff. So, yeah, so tell, me. tell me a little bit about what got you into this.
1: Oh, fuck. Uh, all right, straight in the deep end. I mean, yeah, sex, drugs, and rock and roll got me into this. Uh, I was a musician, you know, in my 20s. Uh, in an era, certainly in the UK, in the 80s, uh, when you'd walk into any studio with your guitars and your valve amps, and they'd go, what are they? We don't need that anymore. We, we got all these digital toys and we were kind of, we like to think we were purists. And, you know, we only used valve amps and recorded live and we were trying to be you kind know, of Rolling Stones circa 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I had a lot of fun. I don't have any regrets about that time of my life. It was amazing. But like a lot of people, I ended up with something of a drug habit and went into therapy and uh, in my late 20s. pretty quickly went, oh, okay, so if I – I mean, this sounds cynical. I don't mean – I mean it actually in a genuine way, but if I become a therapist, then this clusterfuck of a life that I've had so far suddenly becomes a qualification rather than a series of disasters. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, you know, cut a long story short, recognized over time that my client base were the people who don't necessarily – Want to go and read a conventional self-help book, or come and see a conventional therapist? Uh, you know, so I work with a lot of people in the arts, musicians, mm-hmm. writers. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, you
0: know, well, so. that makes a lot of sense because you know, as a musician myself and a creative person, you know, there's some things that I'm really afraid about. With uh, one, I don't like antidepressants because they kind of kill the creativity. You know,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: and, and also. You know, I've never wanted to lose my edge as a musician, as an artist. You know, there's always been this like like really the bad side of me is what drives my creativity. I've always played I played in a punk band called The Scumbags, and you know, most of my songs were about sex and venereal diseases and drugs and mm-hmm. and and in just really bizarre social satire. Yeah. And, you know, and I never wanted to get rid of that side of me. But the drugs were killing me. <laughs> they were just, you know, destroying me. Um, and it sounds like you had a pretty similar experience.
1: They just weren't fun anymore. You know, the the, the drugs were about curiosity and expansion and creativity initially. And I think up to a point, that works. Mm-hmm. You know, any, anyone who says drugs aren't fun has never taken drugs unless they've been really unlucky you know of course drug drug users aren't idiots you know they're not they're not doing it just because they're stupid or they're ignorant they're doing it because there's positive benefits there but uh, you can you can take anything too far you can take sugar too far Mm -hmm. you know take sex too far you can take shopping too far I mean I I think I used to think of addiction as this very exclusive club and now it's very mainstream because everyone's addicted to their phones and technology and blah 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 so I think for me drugs became uh, just a management system and I I remember sitting around going what happened to the days when I would literally be crawling on all fours I was laughing so much Mm -hmm. I don't do that anymore this isn't funny this is just a bit of a drudge you know so having to call the dealer to make sure that there wasn't a kind of you know an overlap so that if i was down to my last i mean you know to be honest cannabis was my main drug of choice if i was down to my last half ounce i'd start getting nervy mm-hmm. and start making phone calls to make sure that there was no gap in between um and then it you know that's really what the book is about it's it's taking the like you say taking those demons that can control us, can dominate us, can ultimately destroy us and making them work for us because that side of myself that has the propensity for all kinds of addictions is also the part of me that can write a book in three weeks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's that
0: that same obsessive, incredibly super focused drive that does that,
1: yeah. Yeah every addict is an obsessive compulsive to some degree and you ask anyone who's ever written a written a book you know made a film paint, painted a masterpiece composed an album the attention to detail is something that it really helps if you're an addict mm-hmm. you know if, if you're going to look at every single word in a book you know if you're going to listen to every note on on a symphony you have got to be an addict really
0: mm mm-hmm. mhm I I totally get that. Like, even with the podcasting, this is my first of three today, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but that's that's how I do it. You know, I mean, I I, I use that ability to focus to get things done. I mean, although like it might not be so positive in other areas in my life, like relationships and like that, because like whatever it is I'm focusing on, I'll neglect everything else. do you ever have that problem?
1: I'm definitely, I'm not a multitasker. You know, I just got offered a, a nice book deal for another book. And I'm very ambivalent about it because I just got offered a film contract to make a TV series. If I'm going to do something, I want to be able to, I can't do it in a dilute way. I have to kind of give it everything. So, yeah, and absolutely. I think, you know, to the exclusion of, a great many relationships in my life i have very close relationship with my children who are teenagers now but i don't live with them and mm-hmm. i haven't since they since they were tiny and my relationship to their mother is very good but it broke down because of my addictive habits and yeah i do get a little bit blinkered when i'm into something and it's not too problematic these days because most of my addictions are quite healthy but right
0: so when you talk to people that are in, you know, uh, just a chain to their addiction, you know, they're 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 shooting heroin and, or smoking crack or whatever. Um, what is your advice to them? Like, how how do you? I mean, like one of the big things I know about addicts, like one of us, one the first hurdle is always overcome is denial, you know, because addicts always have this great propensity to not lie, just lie to other people, but lie to themselves.
1: I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't really find that I work with, with that uh, level of addiction these days. Uh, I think the people who... I don't do any marketing. People just find me. And by the time they find me, they've gone past that as a rule. Mm-hmm. It's like they, they've woken up. Um, I'm not... I don't even know if I'm the best therapist to work with with addiction. You know, I always say, you want to work with me if you're working with something that I'm still fucked up about, right? You want to work with me if I, I kind of managed to work this out about two weeks ago, because then I'm going to be compassionate, I'm going to be alive, I'm going to be sensitive. You come to me with a hardcore drug habit, and that's 30 years behind me, and part of me just wants to go, I'll just fucking stop, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so... Yeah, it's, but you know, by the time they get here, I think they normally want to stop. So most of the work is done. You know, and you're right, it's that moment when people go, you know what, I think I might be doing a little bit too much of whatever it is they're doing. Mm. It's it's rare that I'm the wake up call. They normally come to me when they've had it.
0: Right. So so when they come to you, like, what kind of um, issues are they trying to tackle at that point?
1: Again, I'll be honest with you, if someone had told me when I got into this that 80% of my day would be talking to people about their relationships, I'd have been, I'd have been surprised. But um, that's not how I promote myself. That's not how I ever, what I ever set out to do. But I think one of the single hardest things, once you've got your basics in place, and I'm a white middle class man offering a fairly, you know, something that's still in the UK anyway, is a pretty white middle class field. There's, there's variables within that and I will welcome anyone that comes in but um uh, yeah i totally lost my train of thought there what, what was your question
0: um like what are some of the things like that you're mostly counseling people oh yeah I was,
1: on, uh, that's right i was i was talking about relationships wasn't it yeah I think one of the hardest things that anyone uh, in that bracket anyway once you've got your home and your food and those basics in place one of the hardest things that people are struggling with is their relationships i, I suck at relationships it's not my specialist field
0: in fact i'm going through a divorce right now <laughs> i'm getting ready i just sold my house and i gotta move that's why i'm going back to new jersey <laughs> right
1: yeah 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 i mean it's it's you know it's another epidemic isn't it and i think how old are you
0: i am 53 and this is my yeah, second fi- marriage
1: I'm, yeah i'm 57 and In many ways i think our generation we're pioneers and not you know not pioneers of a very rewarding field but uh, we are pioneering new ways of doing relationships and part of that is we're living longer which is good Mm -hmm. you know i think i think when institutions like marriage were created people would be lucky if they were still alive by the time they were 35 you know women would die in childbirth sooner or later man would die from disease or war or in some industrial accident. And so to commit to a lifetime together wasn't that big a deal. And now everyone's living to 75, 85, 95, to hook up with, you know, my grandparents got together when they were like 17 and and were together until they were nearly 90. Then there's all the economic pressures that people are under now. You know, my parents bought a house in the probably the late 60s for about six grand. now you're looking now you're looking at years you know talking about 100 year mortgages so that people can afford the amounts so the pressure's on us um i do touch on this in the book quite a bit i'm very interested in anthropology and our origins and i like cliches because cliches are founded in truth and repetition and the cliched phrase you know it takes a village to raise a child well that's true we've always done these things communally and now you got Two people trying to raise a kid or two kids or three kids, and they wonder why it's so difficult and why so many of them don't make it. And you know, me and my ex-wife, very good friends, we've known each other since we were kids. We were both therapists, we were both marriage guidance therapists. And when our marriage broke up, I mean, the shit hit the fans. People like, well, if you can't hold it together, what hope have we got? (laughs) And it's like, well, why why wouldn't we go through the same struggles as everyone else? So I think the um, the demands on people and financial pressures and the child raising pressures and everyone's got ADHD or dyslexia or autism nowadays because I think in part because of a lot of these pressures. Um, It's tough, man. So, yeah, I would say 78% of my work is talking to people about their relationships. Hmm.
0: Do you think that one of the common causes of relationships failing is that men get lazy and women get bored?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I see it more as overwhelm. Overwhel- and overwhelm, you know, yeah, when you're overwhelmed, when it when everything becomes a drudge, like I was saying with drugs, I got bored of drugs. If you can get bored of drugs, you can definitely get bored of a marriage. You know, once it becomes a habit, uh, once the fun and the excitement goes, and it's hard to... To move from, for me, I'm talking about me now. You know, I find it hard to go from the fun excitement bit into I'm almost allergic to a kind of suburban domestic lifestyle. You know, that rock and roll part of me, I like. I don't Mm -hmm. want to get rid of it. But it doesn't necessarily, you know, I'm quite intense. Uh, I'm more alive in a shitstorm sometimes than I am in, you know, peace. And this is something that um, the writer Deepak Chopra, Talked about in one of his books, he said that one of the qualities that humans, and I think this applies to men and women, but in different ways, particularly men, one of the qualities we kind of admire in ourselves as a species the most is our ability to struggle and to overcome. So you give us a mountain, we'll climb it, give us a war, we will fight it, give us peace. Now what? It's boring. Peace is boring. If peace wasn't boring, if peace was fun, peace was exciting, you'd have a peaceful world. We don't. We have a war-torn world. We have a conflicted world. We have a w- world where people are storming Capitol Hill, or you know, doing whatever they're doing, because we haven't learned how to live peacefully. And I think that uh, that that applies globally, and that applies domestically. So, certain people, you know, this you and I could have probably sit here and talk for hours about people we know who seem to be able to hold it down and seem to be able to live that life, and I envy them, you know, but I can't. Mm. I try but I find it very difficult my partner now you know I have I've, I'm in a six year long relationship in a, in a very healthy relationship with someone who lives in another country <laughs> 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 yeah. you know and that keeps it alive because we don't live together mm-hmm. and that's one of the ways I've found but it's not the ideal I'd like to yeah I'd like the package I'd like to be married and settled and but you know, the yes word settled you know then I start to freak out so mm-hmm. I guess it depends on your background. I come from a, a pretty messed up family. So I do too. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I always I always compare it because I think it's, a, it's easier to understand when you use an exaggerated uh, analogy or scenario. I always compare it to like a domestic version of you, know, you send someone off to Afghanistan or Iraq and you can train these guys up and they can go to war and then you bring oh. them back and you say, it's cool now. Nothing is going to blow up. No one's going to shoot at you. You know, it's, it's peaceful. It's very hard to adapt to that. And I think similarly, when you grow up in a domestically troubled family, you get hardwired to live like that and expect that, and that becomes your model of what relationships are. So how are you going to fight, go out and find someone and live peacefully if your experience of a family is intense or violent or alcoholic or mm-hmm. You know, mine was all of those things in a very nice English way when nothing was spoken about.
0: Hmm. I know, you know, you mentioned, you know, people become, or we don't like peace that much. You know, we once we get comfortable, one of the partners will probably want to change. Oh. And um, like that's what happened to me too. You know, things got comfortable and my partner wanted something more exciting. Despite, you know, my best efforts of like, you know, slapping her ass or whatever. It just, <laughs> it, even that stuff got boring to her, you know. And um, I don't know. Do, do you think that men and women are actually made to be together? Or do you think that the relationships work better when people are apart? Because after this experience, like I start looking at like my grandmother's relationship. Like she had two husbands. Both of them died. The third guy she was with, she was with for like almost 30 years, but they never lived together. They traveled the world together. They had a blast together, but they never lived together.
1: There's really something to that. As, do you know Osho? You know uh, the mm-hmm. uh, Indian guru? He, yeah. he wrote a book. He wrote a book that I read, um, and he tells a kind of, it's not quite a fairy story, but I thought it was great. It tells the story of a very rich Indian princess who's got a lot of land And She's very beautiful, and a guy comes to her and says, will you marry me? I'll do anything if you'll marry me, anything you ask. And she says, yeah, I'll marry you on one condition. I've got loads of land. So take a plot of land. I want you to build the most exquisite garden imaginable. And at each end of the garden, I want you to build a house. You live in one house, I'll live in the other. And then we can meet in the garden and we can flirt. And he goes, no, no, I can't do that. That's weird. We're not going to live together. I'm not marrying you. I thought, that's the ideal get get a place that you share but have have the courage a lot of a lot of what we build our relationships on including marriage vows is based on fear you know promise me you'll never leave me promise me you'll never fuck anyone else promise me you'll look after me there's a lot of fear involved in these contracts and i think to stay with someone and now i'm veering into theory because i've you know the longest relationship i ever had was 15 years Mm -hmm. so I haven't done a lifetime but um you gotta let each other breathe you gotta let let each other be free and live live your lives and and i think that probably keeps the spark but not all of us can do it
0: hmm yeah yeah i completely agree um
1: and as to the question you know do we get get on. Mm-hmm. That's, just one of, that's just one of God's jokes, isn't it? You put seven and a half billion people on this planet who don't get on. I mean, any relationship, if you live, I don't know, when you're a teenager, when you're in your 20s, I lived with gangs of people, mostly guys, you know, uh, and that was fun. But there comes a point for most people where I think you start to know who you are a bit better, probably have your the lifestyle that you want to live, and that's not really compatible with living together. So even you know living with a woman and and then you bring kids into the equation you have to be of a certain you know i know people who can do that and seem happy but uh, i find that challenging you know i i like to know where my toothbrush is going to be and i don't like it if you put it somewhere else and that's really petty right
2: mm-hmm. but we
1: we all have these things and again i'm i'm saying that a little bit tongue in cheek but i think it's an art it's an art to be able to live life with someone else and not piss each other off or, or manage it when you do. You know, that's another thing. But we, we've got, I don't know, I think in our consumerist society, which I'm balls deep in, um, I think our expectations have become warped. I mean, everything's disposable now, including friendships and lovers and wives and husbands. Um, everything's instantly deliverable, deliverable from an app. So you can dial up a pizza or you can dial up a hookup, you know, very very quickly so our value the sanctity of those relationships has diminished in for our, you know in our lifetime and having traveled in india you know india's got its own shit ton of problems i'm not using that as an ideal but having traveled in india and i i i'm gonna i'm gonna misquote this because i don't remember the exact date but something something like 75 percent of the world still doesn't do uh Relationships based on romantic love because the arranged marriage in places like China and India, which is so vast with such huge, is still the norm in a lot of places. We think that romantic love is, is the way. Mm-hmm. Having traveled around India and met a lot of you know, I went to India in my 20s thinking arranged marriage was this kind of draconian, patriarchal, misogynistic, ancient, medieval thing. And I met loads of people who went, Well, I didn't know myself. My parents knew me better than I did. They knew a really good family. They, Met, you know, they matched me up with this person who's great, and we have a really good. Life. And I was like, well, maybe this is not bad. Maybe if you approach relationships in a somewhat more, I mean, we're not going to do that here. It's too that ship has sailed, right? We 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 live in a world where our expectations, but I don't think there's a right or wrong way. And if you if you, uh, I can imagine if you're quite practical and sensible about putting two people together, why wouldn't that work? You know, romantic love isn't working for us as, a, right, as yeah. a as a culture. If you look at the divorce rates, you know. Yeah, I've heard this before, actually. Yeah.
0: <laughs> do you think that that uh, rom- rom- the idea of romantic love is even real, or do you think it's just a total, I mean, or it's like a, like another bullshit commodity that we're being sold by the entertainment industry?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, fairy stories and Walt Disney have a lot to answer for in how it's been packaged and sold to us. And I remember, like I say, my grandparents had a very healthy, loving relationship and then he died. And I was like, what? I, I What about the happy ever after thing? Oh, no, you live. And, and then he died. Someone dies, and then the other person's heartbroken. So that's mm-hmm. the deal. That was I was in my thirties by by the time I kind of woke up to that one. It's so, like, okay, so you get together, you do your best, and then someone dies. Cool. Um, so I think it's yeah, it's a matter of how it's packaged and sold to us. You know, Freud, who wasn't clearly wasn't a huge romantic, he said that falling in love is a psychotic episode. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, let's let's be honest, if you get kind of scientific and biological it is mostly a rush of oxytocin that's designed to connect us to someone else so that we breed you know that's the least romantic way of looking at it but i think there is more to it than that and i think there is real if you want to use the word spiritual meaning to relationships and i'll i'll honestly say at this stage of my life you know i'm 57 that i think that the main reason for being in relationships with people is to grow. You know, that that's how I, I use it uh, as my spiritual practice, if you like, mm-hmm. or my, my developmental practice. And uh, there's a the nice, no, not nicest, the, the, my favorite um, definition of a soulmate is not the sugar-coated, you know, Walt Disney package, it's the person who comes into your life, destroys you, annihilates you, leaves you broken and battered and going, what just happened? and then leaves you now that's soulmate because that's in in buddhist terms that's the kind of soul contract where a person comes along and gives you a growth opportunity so i i don't necessarily literally believe that but that's how i apply it because i think it's the healthiest way for me to live is to go okay so what am i supposed to learn from this rather than oh god i'm just shit at relationships or why did this happen again you know there's not much there's not much creativity to that so creativity is something i kind of try and apply to everything
0: Hmm. so how about the spiritual aspect of this about these idea of the soul contract and the purpose of life is to learn and learn about ourselves you know my, my big question is always why why do i have to grow why can't I just be a disincarnated entity and just drift around the universe?
1: Yeah, I guess you could. I don't think there's. Uh, <laughs> I don't see that there's any uh, obligation to grow at all. You know, it's a pain in the ass to be honest. You know, a part of me wishes I'd never woken up because I look at people I know who live a life without any interest in growth. Get up, go to work. Come home, drink a few beers, watch TV, go to sleep, rinse and repeat. They seem happier than me, mm-hmm. and I don't think there's any. Uh, you know, if you sign up for this kind of ride because you're pursuing happiness, you're almost certainly going to get disappointed. And I remember going and seeing my first ever therapist after eighteen months, going, "What the fuck is going on?" I feel worse than when I when I first met you. And she went, "Yeah, I guess it's working." <laughs> 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 okay, that's how this thing works, is it? and i'm i'm not I'm not happier than when I started, but I' am a lot more in charge and I'm a lot more creative and I'm a lot more focused and clear so the payoffs were aren't the obvious ones hmm. they're worth it for me but you know or you could say the payoff is I'm now bad at better at managing pain than I used to be, and there's a lot of pain in life so if you can manage pain, you can deal with anything now, that's why I got into got back into i didn't use anything i was completely clean from 28 till 50 and then i started drinking ayahuasca and using other medicines Mm -hmm. uh, in a much more conscious way not in a recreational way and that that yeah that's kind of been a you know what we this thing that we call spiritual i don't know how you define that but um that's been more of a spiritual journey or an awakening um those were ordeals they, they weren't fun experiences but they were ordeals but they've they've given me uh, strength to to face pain and then embrace and, and sit in pain rather than run away from it which you know you, you and i both know that that's what addiction is it's when you can't deal with the pain
0: hmm. so so how um do things like the ayahuasca and microdosing help a person
1: Microdosing has been fucked up by Brexit. (laughs) They didn't think that one through. Uh, So it's very hard to get mushrooms here uh, before you could just get stuff shipped in from Holland. But um, I'm really happy to to see, you know, this thing that is now being labeled the psychedelic renaissance. I'm really happy to see what's going on in America. That blows my mind. I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime, but the the states that are really wising up to the medicinal potential of these, these things. And microdosing is something that I've done for about six years when I can, when I I can get access. Uh, So pretty consistently. And, you know, I got, I got ADD. Uh, I've got a certain amount of PTSD. Microdosing, so like, you know, a quarter of a gram, four days on, three days off is normally my kind of regime. It's sub-perceptual. So you don't have a drug experience any more than you might get from a single cigarette or a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. perhaps even less, actually, I mean, a first cigarette of the day, kind of spins me out when I when I used to smoke. Uh, you know, and that's a good example. When I used to smoke, I don't smoke because microdosing just kicks that that's a lifelong long problem for me. And if I microdose mushrooms, I don't want to smoke cigarettes, it takes all the cravings away. It makes me a better sucked. person. Mm-hmm. Sorry,
0: I said quitting cigarettes sucked.
1: it's just it's just you're just a slave you know Mm -hmm. this horrible drug that does nothing nothing of any good for any of us um so i think there's huge huge potential benefits and you know if used wisely very few downsides to to mushrooms they can really mess your head up you know if you if you're indiscriminate and reckless all these medicines are very dangerous but if they're used under guidance and with support and some education then you know anything that stops people wanting to smoke tobacco is really good um of course the tax revenue isn't so great but uh, so i yeah i've microdosed for a long time it helps me with my focus my add is better when i use mushrooms as much but you know i was on ritalin when i was a kid and that's shit. that's just like cocaine um, mushrooms really helps me with my focus it regulates my mood so I'm a more reasonable human being to be around mm. um, ayahuasca is another whole thing you, you can't microdose ayahuasca that's a big big ass trip and not something I would recommend that anyone does just out of curiosity I think you've got to really prepare for that the danger if you like with ayahuasca is not the medicine it's to be ill prepared because it's it's only recently escaped from the jungle and uh, or being released from the jungle is probably better than escaped. I think the people down there are going. Well, you you lot are really making a mess of things, so you better have some of this medicine. It's, it's not a coincidence that it's emerged from the jungle of of late. You know, it's been around for thousands of years. And that one, I think the problems with it are is, I think I say this in the book. You know, if, if you if you have a difficult time on ayahuasca and you're from Peru you walk up the road and you have a word with your grandmother about what her first trip was like. And she probably give you some guidance. So you go next door to your neighbor and they will give you some guidance. You do ayahuasca in the West. Where do you go? Can't, you know, can't go to hospital if something goes wrong, because it's illegal. Uh, Not many of your friends, certainly you're not your parents or your grandparents are going to be able to help you. So you really need to prepare yourself well, find people, who can help you, you know, who understand that medicine up to a point. Um, and then can help you integrate it afterwards. The trip itself is a Yeah, who knows where that's going to go. I mean, that's everyone's got their own journey. And that can be, I know people who have had very subtle experiences. And this is not like, mm-hmm. like you know, I've got a friend, we've drunk both drunk ayahuasca, we will take the tiniest little hit. he's a big guy like I am, and we're battered for about 12 hours. And then you get my girlfriend, who's a fairly slight, you know, uh, petite Vietnamese woman, who can drink half a bucket of that stuff and it hardly touches the sides. So it you know, don't ask me to explain the pharmacology of that and how that works. But it's that, that I think, you know, it's not to be taken lightly. And mm. it's best to do with some kind of intention and shitload of respect what you're
0: doing it's not something to do recreationally. see i've never done ayahuasca but i did have like when i was in in school as a child um they they just wrote me off as retarded then they put me in like the special classes and told my parents like there's no hope for this kid and he'll never be able to read or write or do anything and then um after i graduated high school like right after I went on a three month angel dust binge, where I just smoked angel dust for for, for three months, <clears throat> and afterwards, I was completely fine. I could read, <laughs> I could write. I went to college, completely normal. All that shit was gone.
1: But wow. wow. what do you make of that? How do you understand that?
0: Um, you know, I I think uh, it rewired my brain. I think maybe there was some neurological damage to my brain or, or something was wrong. And, you know, through that three months of smoking angel dust and tripping my ass off, it it, it rewired it somehow.
1: Oh, all right. So you heard it here first folks. If you, if you've got a problem kid, give them angel dust. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I buy that. You know, I think that we don't understand, um, no that's not fair i think there's a lot of very uh, learned people who have a lot of knowledge and i really admire people who are doing this research there's people who know an awful lot more i know nothing about brain chemistry and neural pathways but i've done enough plant medicine to recognize that something changed in me that you could call it spiritual but i'm a, i'm also i've got hopefully a kind of healthily grounded cynic in me that stops me running off and joining cults and what have you that thinks, yeah, I think something happened in my brain there. I think that particular chemical mix that I ingested seems to have rewired my brain in such a way that I now no longer feel the levels of anxiety that I felt for the first 50 years of my life.
0: And I think the drug companies know that these things work. And because they're actually an actual cure, they don't want to give them out. They'd rather feed people as, drugs that yeah. are, that they have to be people have to become dependent on and take for the rest of their lives and pay money for, rather than actually yeah, not, cure the disease. For,
1: yeah, it's not good for business, is it? No, all. I think it's very it's very easy to get into that kind of way of thinking, and I think it's probably true. Um, yeah. If you can't make you know as humans, isn't it? If you can't make a bark off it, then. <laughs> but you know, there's enough people. I I don't think that will win in the end. You know, I I, I like I said, I have a healthy, what I hope is a healthy cynical part. And it's very easy to look around the world. Never more so, perhaps, with the, you know so much misinformation. It's very easy to look around the world, I think these scumbags are ripping us off and they're cheating us and they're tricking us and what have you but i think in the end that's the beautiful thing about human human animal is good usually prevails not always but you know and it takes a lot longer than most of us would like but good things have happened and you know horrific things have happened in the last century but really good things have happened as well and I can often depress myself through my own writing because I get in some dark shit, and I have to kind of recalibrate just for my own sanity. And I think, fuck, what's the the reader going to make of this? And then towards the end of the book, I make some observations like, you know, it, it can feel very dark sometimes, but mm-hmm. you look at you look at nineteen oh three, the Wright brothers' first flight, you know, first manned flight ever. Sixty six years later, we're on the moon. That moves me. That really moves me. It's like wow, fucking wow, man. You got balsa wood and wire and paper and a propeller, and you got two guys flying around the desert, risking their asses in some kite with a propeller on it. And 66 <laughs> years later, we're on the moon in a tin can. I mean, that's phenomenal. So the potential we have, when we put it to good, you know. I think we're a beautiful species, but, you know, and that's my hope. I'm not, I'm not hanging it all on ayahuasca. You know, you couldn't, people used to talk about slipping acid in the, in the water supply, which is feasible because acid doesn't taste of anything, but anyone who's drunk ayahuasca will tell you, you can't slip that shit in the the water supply because it tastes foul. (laughs) (laughs) You have to really, you have to really choose to drink that stuff and you have to force it down because it does not taste nice. But I think when you got enough people, it's a bit like vaccinations. You know, they say, if enough people get vaccinated, we got herd mentality or herd immunity. Um, perhaps if enough people that happened in the sixties, you know, LSD changed the world. There was a lot of people took out acid, but most people didn't. But enough people took it that it kind of really motivated the anti Vietnam movement, you know, the peace movement that was that would not have happened without acid. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of the civil rights stuff was really propelled by LST. So even though it's a minority, it changed the world. And you gotta hope because it's all we got left is is that things like you know plant medicines will enough people will do it that it begins to filter that the attitudes that come, the learnings, you know, the teachings that come from that, then filters into the people that that don't haven't done it. I don't care whether people take ayahuasca. I'm not not advocating everyone should do that i'm i'm just saying if that's your path you feel called to that go drink some medicine and then share what you've learned
0: mm-hmm. how do you have, have you tried any other ways of achieving altered states like binaural beats or isolation chambers stuff like that meditation yeah
1: i'm, I'm too intense for that man <laughs> Ah, uh, you know, it is, a, it's a desensitization that comes with trauma. So it takes quite, you know, it takes something a bit. I've tried meditation. I think it's a really healthy thing to do. Uh, I meditated this morning, you know, all of 10 minutes, I think. Um, yeah, uh, it's not something, maybe I'm too lazy. You know, you talked about laziness earlier. Maybe I need the bells and whistles and the excitement, or you know, maybe it's just I haven't got the discipline. Because if you're meditating, you can stop. If you drink a cup of ayahuasca, you're not getting off that ride until it's done with you. So there's something to that, which is okay. This is this is going to happen. There's no there's no getting out of it. That mm-hmm. works works for me. I've done um, you know, I've done fast, rapid breathing, you know, hyperventilating stuff. That's pretty powerful i have done i did an isolation tank once so yeah I, I just pinged off the walls really um but you know f- find your own way so there's going to be something that works for you mm-hmm. I, I don't do much of anything anymore you know I, I mean i have my own therapy uh the last time maybe it was i, I took a boga as well the bogus not a f- particularly fun it's not a party drug bogus the west african route that you're kind of supposed to do once in a lifetime and People go on incredible, long, long journeys on that stuff. I didn't. I just got got told stop doing shit like a boga, you know. Stop, stop seeking these really intense things and learn, learn to live peacefully. You know, it was a good, good lesson for me, uh, and that's work in progress. Mm-hmm. So I try and live day to day with these these teachings rather than constantly seeking another high, you know, or another major experience.
0: So, what do you think about the legalization of marijuana? Uh,
1: what do I think about the illegalization of marijuana? Would be- <laughs> well, it should have never been illegal.
0: It's true.
1: <laughs> uh, that's you know, that's, most of the drug laws are rooted in racism. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want the Mexicans running around crazy on weed, raping all our white women. You know, it's that that kind of rhetoric. Uh, yeah, it's just it's it's immoral. It's wrong. It's insane. We need education, uh, not. Prohibition, you know, how how well did prohibition work with alcohol in the states? I mean, there's your model. And if you look at Portugal and Switzerland, who have decriminalised everything, you know, Portugal, I think in two thousand and two, their crime rates have plummeted, their death rates have plummeted. I think they have the lowest death rates, drug related death rates, in the world. So, again, as I said in the book, you know, that's not that's not uh, a belief. That's data. It's not a concept. That's just hard facts. You decriminalize this shit. You clean it up. You remove the cartels and the black market. You educate people. You give them safe treatment centers and help if they've got a problem. The war on drugs is over. War on drugs uh, is—you've lost you people who started the war on drugs. Sorry, you lost. Now should we try something different?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. like like here in the United States, it was just. I think about profit, you know, they they're making money off the drugs, they're making money off the, the police, they're making money out of the prisons, they're, they're using it to, you know, and to, once they get people into prisons, They can use them as slaves. And...
1: Uh, yeah. <clears throat> totally. totally. It's, a, it's, you know, the whole thing is a grotesque clusterfuck of racism and, yeah, dark, dark, dark financial gain yeah and like i say luckily well it's not luck it's on the back of a lot of good people campaigning and losing their liberty and campaigning nevertheless and speaking out against these these oppressive systems is changing and i'm glad i've got kids man i, you know, I want my kids to grow up in a world where i don't have to worry that you know, my kids came home from school when they were about 10 they printed out uh pieces of paper with lists of drugs on them saying how dangerous they were and i went through the list with them and I went i've tried that done that that was really good didn't like that one so much and at the end i said look this is horseshit this is just propaganda right drugs are dangerous drugs are undoubtedly dangerous and drugs are fun and you might come to a point in your life where the dangers you know don't frighten you so much that you get curious and you might want to explore that that's not going to be a problem for me unless you don't tell me if you don't tell me I'm going to be really worried. Where are you getting this shit from? What's in it? What's the quality? You know, who, what environment are you taking this in? Because that's the danger. Mm -hmm. You know, the actual substances, you know, it's not that, you know, we had like local to where I live. I think we had seven or eight heroin deaths one week, very quickly back to back because some good shit got released onto the streets. And these Poor people are so used to shooting crap that's cut with all sorts of rubbish that they got some good quality stuff. They shot the same amount of stuff they normally wouldn't it killed them because they all did. This is the danger. Heroin, well, I don't want to be a heroin addict. I've never been a heroin addict uh, or any kind of opiate addict. Uh, being an addict, of anything, is you know, it's, it's problematic, but no one needs to die. I think if there's quality control... And education and support. Mm-hmm. People aren't people aren't gonna you know people
0: aren't gonna die. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean I always take a lot of heat too for saying that, that I believe that everything should be legal. You yeah. know. And then people are like, Well how can you say that as a, a recovering addict? And I'm like, it's safer. It's just safety. Get it in the pan- hands of people that can, you know, monitor you know make quality drugs and 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 get it out of the hands of cartels where they're just creating killing each other and creating gangs and you know it just makes more sense for and it's a great business opportunity
1: yeah yeah well i think that's probably you know again being cynical probably what's swinging some of it is that you know people waking up to the revenue right Tax revenue for marijuana. I mean, I keep reading these stats of how much money California's making, or whatever. And you go, "Well, good, <laughs> good." You know, take the tax. That's cool with mm-hmm. me.
0: And then you can use some of that money to help people with problems. Yeah. And then everybody benefits. No.
1: No. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I say all this absolutely. I'm not a drug user anymore in a you know recreational sense. I'm scared of drugs now, and you know, even marijuana, which was my daily habit. I can't smug weed anymore. I Just I get freaked. You know, I'm mm-hmm. too sensitive now. I've done. I've I've opened up too much. It was a, it was a pleasurable experience when I was very shut down. The more I've opened up, the less I'm interested in using. So mm-hmm. you know, if you want you want to cure people of addiction in that sense, yeah, help them work so that they don't have to avoid pain. You know, I'm not avoiding the same levels of of pain that I was when I was young. What well, you
0: know. Avoiding pain seems to be a natural thing, at least I guess for everybody. I mean, I think that might be a human nature thing. But pain is also the thing that we we need the most, you know. Like we mentioned growth earlier, and you mentioned like like that heartbreak is the thing that that we learn the most from. And it's either going to do one of two things: like, like it's either going to shut us down, or it's going to break is wide open. So we experience all uh, an incredible flow of of feeling and emotion. Um, Do you you encourage your clients to to be open to that flow of pain and to just accept it and feel it?
1: Yeah, because if the alternative is to numb yourself out or avoid it through some other in one of my early books, I wrote a book, I, I stole the title from Bill Hicks called it play from your fucking heart uh and in that one of the chapter headings can't remember it exactly was something like hit your thumb repeatedly with a 13 ounce s-wing claw hammer which is obviously a really stupid idea mm-hmm. but no one ever hit their thumb twice right <laughs> you hit your thumb i've done it man you hit your thumb with a hammer <laughs> <too>. <laughs> you don't do it again <clears throat> and that's because because as you say we with you know pain is is a fantastic system, it stops you from repeatedly hitting your thumb because the pain is so great you know you and it's so quick how quickly that information goes from your thumb to your brain, it's instant right so it's a really good system unfortunately, because we've got such such and this i think it has there's differences here with gender, so men in particular. I've always been taught to ignore pain, avoid pain, and shut pain down. Emotional pain I'm talking about now. Um, That's problematic because you've got a system that is designed to do the same thing. I feel emotional pain, so I need to change my circumstances or I need to move away from this situation. But we shut it down. That's as fucking crazy as shutting down physical pain so that you keep hitting your thumb with a hammer. No one would do that, and yet it's kind of culturally accepted for men. You know, man up, don't cry. You know, push through the pain. I think that's crazy. Pain is our friend. Pain is just a very efficient messenger to communicate to us when something isn't working for us, and that we need to change our situation or our environment or our behaviour. And so, drugs are one of the ways that people, when misused, you know, I, I say I'm I'm pro drugs. I'm anti drug abuse. You know, use whatever you want. I, and I was listening to uh, a podcast. I can't. I may have been um, the guy who wrote the psychedelic explorers guide, James Fadiman. I think it might have been him. Doesn't matter really. But whoever it was said something very wise. When substances are used with a degree of ceremony and ritual, you rarely get problems including alcohol you know you toast the bride or whatever when there's a ritual tobacco ceremonies ayahuasca ceremonies anything like that it tends to go you know be okay but the minute you start to misuse things and abuse things and abuse yourself in order to close your pain down things are going to go wrong but pain yeah pain absolutely if you can if you can learn to manage your pain enough so that you can sit in it that's the best antidepressant I've discovered and you know I have a fair, you know, I, I visit depression a couple of times a year, I would say. And I don't I don't really, uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's something that is pleasant, but I've learned that rather than avoiding it or numbing it out, uh, if I sit in it, you know, people are always told, certainly in England, don't wallow in your feelings. Well, actually, if you wallow in your feelings, you'll come out of them quicker. If you really sit in it, experience it, feel it, Notice what what message is trying to get through. You know, depression is, is masking deeper things. That's what depression is in many ways. It's a mask to deeper pain. So if you can sustain sitting in that depression or that anxiety or whatever, so that you can get the deeper message, it often clears much much quicker.
0: Hmm. What is the
1: worst? Pain? Our, our society tells us not to, right? No. Yeah. And the, the the very the very term antidepressant. We're anti pain you know i get it no one likes it but popping a pill whether it's a narcotic or a pharmaceutical is rarely the answer i mean there are obviously people with serious mental health issues who need lithium and what have you but even that's debatable for me i would need i need to know a bit more before i make that general statement
0: hmm. what is the worst pain that you've ever felt
1: uh i think it's been a long drawn out pain um, rather than one moment, perhaps uh, not living with my children, you know that's that's not natural. We are we are, you know, everything in us is kind of designed to live with our kids, and those are years that you don't get back. Mm-hmm. So that's you know that will be painful forever. It should be painful. Nothing wrong with that. That's an appropriate pain. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's the pain of. Being sexually abused, there's the pain of being bullied, there's the pain of being shamed. Those things were tough, but that's just shit that happens in life. But yeah, the choices I made that resulted in me not living with my children mm-hmm. that's pain. Interesting.
0: I can see that. That makes sense. Like, I know for me, probably the most painful thing that I've experienced so far was the loss of my parents. Right. You know, and even though it wasn't like the perfect situation, it was still, you know, it's like a pain that never goes away. It's just there. It's always there.
1: Which, again, I think is good. I think that's right. I think you know, when you when you hear people talking, I have a friend who uh, lost her son in um, Libya. He was a war photographer, and he was killed in Libya, and she ended up in a hospital. And they said, how long is it since your son was killed? And she said, eight years or nine years or whatever. And they were like, you should be over that by now. And I think, <laughs> yeah, <right>. Fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. How fucking dare you say that? Because for me, you know, yeah, I mean, that's one of the more painful things was losing my grandparents who were essentially parents to me. I, uh, why would I get over that? Why would there be, you know, maybe my grandfather's been dead twenty, nearly 25 years sure that that feels disrespectful to me to the mm-hmm. dishonorable to the relationship and the depth of love i don't expect to get over that every time i think about him i feel a degree of sadness i also feel a degree of uh celebration and gratitude me too so,
0: me too that 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 said this reminds me of of what i, yeah, I had and, and how it affected yeah. me and then that sadness suddenly, well, it does not suddenly, but sometimes it'll slowly morph into some type of, you know, like, wow, yeah, I feel sad because this was so good. Mm. You know, and I miss that goodness. And and it keeps me connected, like in a, in a spiritual type of way
1: yeah.
0: or emotional, yeah, whatever you want to call it.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm sitting on a, you can't see it, but I'm sitting on a couch right now that is just about holding together it's it was made in the 1920s by my grandfather my mother had her nap my mother's 89 she had her nap changed on it as a baby i had mine my children had theirs and i this is where i write this is where i see all my clients from this is my safe this is my happy place you know because he made it with his hands as mm-hmm. a young man and i used to go see him he'd be sitting on this couch you know there's it's a way of, of staying connected to him. And I feel, interestingly, you know, like I say, he's been dead nearly a quarter of a century. I feel closer to him than ever. And the relationship is stronger than ever. And I hear him all the time. Or I, th- that's even wrong. To say here it sounds like it's auditory. I experience him. I experience him living through me
0: Yeah,
1: more than ever. You know, and I remember my kids, at the time, I thought, is this normal? <laughs> yeah. Should kids be this fixated on death? My kids were tiny. They were like in the back seat of the car. They were maybe like two or three years old. And I heard this voice from the back say, Daddy, where will you go when you die? And I didn't even miss a beat. I, I said it before I thought about it. And then after, when I heard myself say it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I just went, it's okay, I'll be in you. And then I was like, oh yeah, that's true. That's the secret of eternal life is you do your best to infuse yourself, the best of you, to the people you love, and then you live on in them. you know. And you get forgotten because my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, they're living on in me whatever they went through, whatever they passed down lives in me. I didn't know them. I don't know anything about them because we forget so quickly but they're alive in me. That to me is a good way to live. You know? It
0: is. And, and that brings up another topic too that comes up quite often on my podcast, which is um we don't worship or, or or acknowledge our ancestry anymore
2: yeah
0: you know which was really a, a thing in you know up to maybe 100 years ago people acknowledged their ancestry
1: yeah i mean am this uh, that's interesting you you mentioned that i'm very passionate about that and I, i've learned you know i've been a therapist for 27 years now and I've learned that it's a mistake not to acknowledge the ancestry to the point where everyone that comes in this room. I think right there's a couple hundred people walking in right now. This person is the kind of spearhead of that group of people, but I'm dealing with. It's um when I uh, first started getting help, I went to a shaman. Native American chairman. And she said to me, I remember in the first session, I think she said, Oh, but of course, you're a line breaker. I was like, what's a line breaker? She said, Well, in our culture, we believe that someone comes along every seven generations who kind of untangles the complexities and the traumas and the problems from the previous seven generations in order to set up a different pattern of behaviors for the next seven generations. And I love that concept. I think that's a really good, responsible Mm -hmm. way to work so i always need to know about people's grandparents and great-grandfathers and grandmothers and you know where they come from and that's something i wrote about about an empathy for the devil is um there's a big chunk of it is looking at the great war and how that affected my family over you know the past hundred years and people who essentially just went silent through because of the particularly the, the two wars in the last century who just came home and couldn't talk about it. And so we've been raised by people who were traumatized and silent. And what does that do to us? And people say, oh, but you know, the war, yes, you know, over years ago, It's like, well, yes and no. You know, the war kind of lives on in me in how that shaped my grandparents. And I hand in my heart, most of my rebelliousness, mm-hmm. not, not all of it, but most of my rebelliousness comes from these people who saw the the older kids go off in the first world war and never come back and they were really angry about that their whole lives and they infused me with that mistrust they're like don't <laughs> trust these people these people will get you killed you know <laughs>
0: it's, you know people are often asked, like, like one of them things like, like politically i'm just an anarchist you know i just don't believe in one person ruling over another and, and and i'll tell people i say i come from a long line of anarchists because my grandfather you know after i mean he he ended up in the united states because of the war you know he came here from italy and and right. had to redo everything and you know my father was carried a lot of that t- same type of like you know he he could not stand government and, and people telling him what to do and seeing society being manipulated and me too so so that's three generations right there of just anarchism
1: yeah well you know i don't know if everyone looks at time like this but you know 100 years ago seems like a long to- long time ago it's not i could go and see my mother tomorrow and i could hold her hand and i'd be holding hands with someone who held hands with someone who was alive in the 1830s because she knew her great great grandmother Mm -hmm. right so that's how close we're only two handholds away from you know pre-american civil war by 30 years that's how close that is and so it may be a long time if you're hanging around for 140 50 years that would take a long time but in terms of the ripples of these experiences and how they how close they are you know i think that's really important to remember you know the american civil war is not very long ago and we've seen you know we still see in what's going on with the talk of renaming you know army bases in, in the states or pulling down statues and you know, the Trump administration's response that. It's it's a raw wound.
0: Mm -hmm. It's fresh. And and that brings up along the same lines too, I think a thing that we've lost touch with is the value of wisdom that um, our older generation has. Like I know here in America, we just discard them in nursing homes and forget about them and think that everything that they have to say is old and foolish. And we don't look at the actual wisdom that they contain. Like, like, like there's such a resource for us, and we're just discarding them.
1: Well, you know, the Rolling Stones give me hope.
0: (laughs) Well, Keith Richards is immortal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I think you're absolutely right, and I'm being flippant there, but I do hope that as we are all living longer that you know this this thing that we call youth culture will lose its kind of i don't know if it's fascistic i don't know if that's the right term but you know it's like we we have deified youth Mm -hmm. in in the last in the last 50 or 60 years perhaps i think post second world war we've really you know youth culture has become the thing and you know, you watch those old newsreels of interviews with the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, and they're 23 years old, and, and the interviews are going on. You're a bit old to be doing this now, and that was that was the, the residue <laughs> of that youth culture. You know, still exists. So the more I see older people still being vital, you know, still being respected, still because you're right, man. That I mean, they're incredible. Uh, I say they and I hesitate because I'm fifty seven and I can it's just around the corner. So I have a personal attachment to the value of old age as well. But yeah, elders are really important.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and Rolling stones are a really good example. Um like, like I've read Keith Richards' book, I think Life it's called. Yeah.
1: And yeah, that's
0: and, good. and he talks about coming to, to the US sort of in the late 60, 60s and finding like these um the few, some few remaining old juke joints in the south, and, and jumping in there and, 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 and jamming with some of these blues players and shit like that. You know, it, it's, it's incredible. You know, like, like, like he had though the appreciation and the wisdom to know what he was experiencing.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, those guys all got discarded pretty quick, didn't they? And I think, yeah, I I don't know. People talk about cultural appropriation, but I've seen enough of those old black dudes say they appreciate you know bands like the Stones for putting the blues on the map. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that Elvis and those kind of artists in the 50s where it was very clean cut, but I think the Stones were pretty vocal about what they were working with, whereas I'm not... I might be wrong i've never heard be, you know elvis talk about the roots of the music that he was playing no, with gratitude no. and appreciation uh and you hear that you hear the stones and they always acknowledge you know muddy and howling wolf from these people
0: yeah they, yeah they would even have them open <laughs> for them right. which was fantastic no, i thought no, no. you know like, like they, they they showed homage to to these guys that, that really are the ones that created that music yeah you know if it wasn't for them we wouldn't have any of that
1: yeah yeah exactly so rock and roll you know that was that was that was definitely something uh, something i always write about really you know it's a personal passion but it's um it's it's got that amazing rebellious energy that i think is it's very truthful it can be you know it's very honest mm-hmm. it's an honest art form
0: it is it is um do you listen to any newer music? No. No.
1: <laughs> no, I'm really, 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 really bad. You know, my my kids, uh, sometimes they turn me on to new stuff. My My younger daughter is 17, and she said to me a while back, you know, I'm pissed off with you because with my elder sister used to put, used to put headphones on, on our mother's stomach and belly when, when she was pregnant and play my elder sister, Jimi Hendrix. And she's got really good taste in music. And I just like pop music, so, you know, probably to my elder one's definitely much more into rock and roll. So there's contemporary stuff that I occasionally pick up on and I'm blown away by, it, you know, but it's, mm-hmm. I still go back to the music that I guess I absorbed off the radio when I, you know, I was born in 1964 i mean has there ever been a better year in musical history than 1964 you know for the stuff that was exploding around the world and i think i just absorbed that
0: hmm. so so what do you mostly list? like 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 hendrix Stones, stuff like that sap that one
1: yeah i mean in it, that that's that's definitely yeah, you know, i love a lot of the old blues stuff uh Yeah, interestingly, I've kind of got back into the Beatles as well. You know, when I was a kid, I was into the Beatles before I was into the Stones. Then I really got into the Stones, and now I've gone back into the Beatles. And there's this new film coming out. Yeah, I've
0: heard it.
1: That's really exciting to me because the Stones were about something that I think I chimed with, which was an angry, rebellious "fuck you" energy, Mm -hmm. And, and fantastic music. You know, you know, amazing music. As I've got older, I've started to appreciate the Beatles for their musicianship, uh, and that—that's a different level. I think that's—it's a whole different thing. This, you know, the Beatles and Stones are always compared, and I think that's a waste of time. But yeah, the, the complexity and the beauty and the intricacy—I don't get it. I don't understand how four kids from Liverpool had that talent. I just mm-hmm. don't know how that's—that was possible. Hmm. You know, that's, that's next level. So I'm it fascinated is. by that
0: interesting like, i know it got me like i don't, I don't know what I age but i remember being a kid watching tv and and i saw alice cooper on tv uh, yeah. and, and I, like as a kid i was like that's it that's what i want to be <laughs> i want to be that scary <laughs> motherfucker <on it. laughs> running around with a freaking snake and pouring blood on people <laughs> <laughs> and then i got yeah, no. you know i got into heavy metal and then heavy metal got kind of cheesy and then i moved into punk and um and i've been into it ever since in fact I, I still go to shows do you still go to shows
1: i'm trying to remember what a show is you know we've been locked up <laughs> for two years and i can't i can't even remember i can't even remember last time i went to a show uh but. And I shut my hearing as well. So yeah, I, I can't
0: hear anything. I, and... I'm going to be disappointed. If, if, if I die and I still have any hearing left, <laughs> that means I did a crappy job at living.
1: <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: because I, 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 it's the one thing I, I never plan on letting go of, you know, it's still to this day going into a club and feeling that bass pounding against my body, yeah. it makes me feel more alive than anything else in the world.
1: Yeah, my first, the first gig, you know, now in the UK, you've got all sorts of noise abatement restrictions from the local authorities, and you can't have music so loud because it fucks people's hearing up, which it definitely did for me. But I remember going to uh, Wembley Stadium in 1982, June the 26th at about 8 o'clock and saw my first ever show which was the stones and my ears are probably still ringing from that i remember coming out and shouting to my friends we couldn't hear each other and feeling like i was being physically physically kicked in the chest mm-hmm. with a bass drum you know you you don't get that anymore everything's kind of help and safety yeah no, i don't like that but it's a visceral experience i think you know that kind of music is a is a visceral experience
0: yeah yeah, definitely. My first concert was Deep Purple.
1: Wow, that's a good one. I
0: remember like yesterday. <laughs> uh, Especially when he played a uh, Child in Time, I was like,
1: "Whoa!" <laughs> yeah, music, music. I think it's uh, it's almost one of the few things that we, the masses, have left. That is a almost religious experience. You know, it can, it can take you to other, other places. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of spiritual, spiritual thing, and it can really unify people. Now, where else? All right, sport. Sport. Is, you know, that's not my thing, but you, you get hundreds of thousands of people attending sport. But music, yeah, it's like a preacher, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You get hundred thousand people. And I was towards the end of my drug use. I was working on illegal raves when the whole kind of ecstasy MDMA thing kicked off. And that was never my music, but I appreciated the kind of tribalism of it. You know, you walk into a club and you've got 5,000 people all on pills, jumping up and down to trance music. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, wow, this is, this is as old as we are. You know, people were doing this with a piece of wood next to a fire. Yeah. You know, a, mil- a million years ago, there's that throbbing monotonous beat. Mm-hmm. Gets you, man.
0: Yeah, I've always liked that kind of stuff too. It's kind of funny you bring up the noise thing. I went to a concert, I guess about three weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, in Mobile. I went to go see "I Hate God," <laughs> but uh, one of the things was like, like after the show, the uh, club owner posted on Facebook that they got their first noise complaint
1: because <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was so loud. Yeah. Uh. when you know you've done a good show
0: yep (laughs) so before we wrap it up man where can my listeners find you and find your book and your podcast
1: i mean i always ask people to order it from their local bookstore because these little places are all dying because i don't think we have a local bookstore well it's too late then (laughs) then you have to go to the great (laughs) demon amazon you know (laughs) Yeah, Amazon Amazon is you know the horrible place where you can get anything these days so you can get empathy for, for the devil from from there I mean my uh, my website jerryhyde.co.uk, UK is where you can there's a lot of links to other talks and films and things I've done and uh, uh, I w- I've also got a film out at the moment which I actually don't know. Oh no, you would be able to access it in America if you went to it's called Make Me a Man. It's about the the guys that I work with and have worked with for the last twenty years or so who were all brave enough to go on camera, which is really rare. Hmm. It's hard to film that stuff. Um, that's cool and if so if you go to make me a man um, I'm really proud of that. It's a very beautiful piece of work. Awesome.
0: So I will post links to those in notes of my episode, so when people are listening or after they listen, they'll uh, check it out. Great.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: I appreciate having you on, man. It was fun.
1: Yeah. No, I, I kind of forgot. I forgot we were doing a podcast. So that's what we did. <laughs>
0: I had one of those yeah. the other night where I forgot I had one and somebody sent me a text message like 10 minutes before. It reminded me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but I mean, I forgot during. i I didn't forget before i forgot whilst we were talking you know and that's good that's a good sign you got a nice natural (laughs) you got a nice natural way of of talking and i I forgot that we were recording this that's that's a good sign so thank you thank you for what you're doing
0: you're welcome thanks for being on and just hang on for one moment and i'm just going to play the outro all right man. monotonous clanking
2: top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says, whispers to magic.